Okay, so welcome to this week's Zoom Parsha class, and the portion is called Lech Lecha, and the word Lech Lecha means go for your sake. Literally, it means go to you. Uh, we'll talk about that at the end, but um, it's translated simply as go for your sake. God told Abraham, he was 75 years old, and God told Abraham to go, uh, go forth, go from your land, from your birthplace, from your father's house to the land that I will show you. So if you remember in last week's Torah portion, um, Terah, who's Abram's father, was already leaving the birthplace, the Ur Kastim. Um, Ur Kastim, I was told, was uh, is Iraq. And um, he already had the plans. If you look in last week's Torah portion, he already had the plans to go ahead and travel to what would become Israel, which was then called the land of Canaan. However, he, get, he stops in a place called Choron, and that is where they're living. God's now telling Abraham, you continue with the journey. You go all the way to um, Choron. So that's where this Torah portion begins, with God telling him to go. Now, I shared with you that that word lech lecha is, is, you know, extra. It could have just told God, God it could have just said, and God told Avram, go, go forth. Why go lech lecha? So Rashi's interpretation is go for your sake. It will be good for you. And he promises here, Avraham, three things. He promises him fame. He promises him wealth, and he promises him offspring. Now, Rashi's simple interpretation of why all of a sudden these promises is because these are the three things that people lose when they travel. You know, to create yourself a name, you have to stay in a community. Someone who keeps on traveling isn't going to get into, you know, isn't going to become famous. You know, in those days, they didn't have social media. But on the other hand, and on the other hand, you also, you can build your business if you're constantly moving. And then also, physically, the traveling is not the time to have children. Now, I heard from the Rebbe of Blessed Memory an incredible insight. So Avram is going to say, you'll see it in the verses, that he says, I am but dust and ashes. Avram is the epitome of humility. Thus, the Rebbe asked the question, how are you going to entice Abraham? The reason you should go is because through that you'll have fame. Avram didn't care about fame. So, therefore, the Rebbe asked the question, why was one of the three promises when God tells him you should go for your benefit because you're going to be famous. And the answer that the Rebbe gave, unbelievable. He said that Abraham was at that point identified as the man 
of monothe monotheism, and thus it would be called the God of Abraham. Everyone identified Abraham as a believer in God, and thus Avram knew that his fame amongst the people really translates into God's fame. Because when they talk about him, they're going to identify and associate him with God. Oh yeah, Avram, the one that believes in God, the one that talks about one God, the one that lives that type of life. So therefore, to him, fame was a plus because he saw himself just as they can do it to the fame of God. Interesting. So Avraham packs up and leaves. Avraham travels to the land of Canaan. And when he gets there, the verse tells us that there was a famine in the land. Now, I, I want to share with you a teaching and then my own thought. The teaching is that this was one of the 10 tests that God gave Abraham. Why? Because Abraham could have said, really, God, I don't understand. You commanded me to go here and you're making it impossible for me to be here. And thus he could have questioned God and he didn't question God. And thus he passed the test. What's interesting is that when he sees that there's a famine, he just leaves the land and goes to Egypt. And now people start asking, whoa, 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 maybe that was the test. Maybe the test was God told you to go to the land of Canaan and there's a famine there and let's see if you're going to stay in Canaan or not. Now, the simple answer is because God didn't tell him to live in Canaan, God told him to go to Canaan. However, I want to share with you a different insight that you're going to see carry through this story. You know, sometimes in our chaotic, dysfunctional, not well-founded, and I don't mean to be harsh here, but I'm being very precise with my words. Sometimes when our relationship with God isn't grounded, the faith is chaotic. So we start interpreting things into, well, this is a question of self-sacrifice. And what we're seeing here is that Abraham, as a man of faith, does not find his relationship with God having to be one of chaos, illogical, self-sacrifice, extreme interpretations. No, he just sees it. Okay, God told me to come here. I did come here. And now I'm going to have to leave here temporarily until this famine passes. You're going to find the next thing, in the, the, the exact same theme in the next story. Abraham places Sarah at that point, he was called Avram, she was called Sarai, places her in a box to smuggle her into Egypt 
without her being seen. And the simple reason is because he identifies that she's beautiful and that's going to be dangerous getting into Egypt. It was a very perverse place. And therefore, he literally takes very practical steps. A, he tells her, say you're my sister and not my wife. And he's able to get away with that because she was his niece. She was his brother's daughter. So the word sister isn't really um, that far off. Then besides telling her that if you get caught, this is what you should say, he actually, like I said, places her in a box. So once again, he isn't taking this attitude that God promised me children, God promised me fame, God promised me wealth, so it's God's job to protect Sarah. No, he takes the practical approach. And thus I want to share with you that in the most fundamental, most fundamental concept of faith is that we will do work with the faith that God will bless our work. However, to get radical and say, no, 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 we're not going to do any work or we're not going to figure out the logistics of this, but rather we're going to interpret everything as God said, so I have to believe, rather than getting into the detail, what exactly did God say? And at the end of the day, faith is that God, quote the teaching, the verse, that God will bless the work of our hands. So I find that very important, especially in our generation, where people tend to think that faith and fanaticism work hand in hand. And people think that faith and self-sacrifice in the extreme, unnecessary, is faith. No, it's not. Okay? So, I already slipped into the next part of the story where... He tells uh, Sarah, Sarai, to say, you're my sister. And, and all of a sudden, um, in the taxes, meches, you know, in the, uh, what's it called? When you go through the border, you have to, you know, claim anything of what are you bringing in and so forth and so on. So those people found actually Sarai and, <coughs> excuse me, they start talking about, how amazingly, unusually beautiful this woman is. They bring the news to Pharaoh, um, that Pharaoh should know that there's an amazingly beautiful woman that just entered the country. And sure enough, Pharaoh takes her and wants her as his wife or whatever, at least a relationship with her, I don't know. So what happens is, that he actually does give the quote-unquote brother large wealth for a dowry and takes um, Sarai to the, the palace. 
and that's when the miracle does happen and um, Pharaoh realizes that he's being plagued in an unusual way and our sages tell us what was the unusual way was that he was not able to be in a position where he could perform and everyone in the palace in that arena um, was unusually plagued in like any woman in the palace that was in childbirth all of a sudden couldn't and so forth and so on and Pharaoh says okay something is going on and that's when he finds out that she is actually the wife and not the sister and he is told that uh, that you should know that Abraham is a prophet and he will he will know that nothing happened and he will pray for you and for your household and that's what happens and he actually accuses Abraham how can you do such a thing why why do you tell me that she's your sister why don't you tell me that she's your wife and Abraham actually you know gets ends up now being in a very huge situation of wealth and the fame is starting to happen with the miracle but Pharaoh tells Abraham you need to leave I will not be able to protect you and your wife in this country because there will always be people who will try to rob your wife and therefore Abraham leaves now if you remember at the end of last week we talk about that Abraham had two siblings one sibling died and he left two daughters and a son each one of the brothers the remaining two brothers married one of the daughters it means their niece and then the nephew was adopted by Abraham and he would hang around with Abraham now when he came out of Egypt and he ended up having his wealth and Abraham had his wealth all of a sudden Lot started getting into problems with Abraham and what would happen is that Abraham was very careful not to let any of his livestock graze in fields that belonged to someone else and one of the signs that they knew that this was Abram's camel was because it was muzzled and therefore when Lot started behaving and Lot's shepherds started behaving um, dishonestly just letting their animals go ahead and eat anywhere Abraham and and then Abraham's shepherds would say what, what are you doing we, we don't do that and they would say oh come on God promised Abraham this land Abraham has no sons so it's going to go to the next kin which is Lot so therefore it belongs to Lot already so leave us alone and they answered well even according to your logic God said I will give it and it's not it's not his yet you have no right to do this Abram sees that Lot is just letting this happen so he tells Lot listen um, you know there's a lot of livestock between you and me uh, why don't you choose whether you want to go left and I'll go right if you choose right I'll go left and and let's be let's let's remain in peace and Lot um, looks and he sees Sodom and Sodom and Gomorrah before it was turned over 
literally is referred to as a garden of God. It was so beautiful. And therefore, he chooses there, even though he was aware of the evil, immoral, unkind ways of Sodom. And I should say that in the Torah, from what, what I understand and learned is that their primary issue was not immorality in, in, in a lewd way, like, you know, in the times of, uh, of the flood, previous to the flood, but rather their primary focus was, we don't want guests here. We don't want people to stop moving in when they come here and they see how great this place is. And though, thus they were very nasty in their civil law of damages and stuff like that. Anyway, um, he goes, Lot goes down there. Abram is now alone and God gives him a blessing and, uh, and tells him that your offspring will be many, like the sands of the earth. And Abraham settles in Hebron. Okay, Hebron is actually in where Avram, Sarah, Yaakov, Yitzchak, Rivka, and Leah are buried. Also, Adam and Eve is buried there. Now, the next story is interesting. So Lot made a bad decision, and he moves into a place where not good. And then what happens is there's a war, and the Torah gets into the details of two groups of allies, the four kings and the five kings, and how one group had to pay taxes and homage to the other group for the rights of their lands. And then after 12 years, on the 13th year, they decided they're, they're done with this. They're going to go together and go to war. Now, one of those countries was Sodom. Thus, in the war, when the mightier allies won, they took everything, and all of a sudden, Lot is a captive. Now, Lot is notified that, I'm sorry, Abraham is notified that his nephew was conquered in war, taken in war, as, you know, prisoner of war. So, immediately, he goes ahead and he starts getting together an army. Now, it's interesting because if you look at the verse, it gives you a number to his army. And here is the number, 318. However, our sages tell us, oh, that's an odd number. What's that number about? So really, they say that if you look at the numerical value of the one person who was a servant to Avraham and was in charge of his entire household, who was a very loyal student, the one that Avraham taught all his knowledge to. This person, actually, his name, Elazar, equals to, to um, I'm sorry, this number equals to 318. And thus they learn that this, um, this army was really just Abraham and his servant. Now, what happens here is that how do two people fight a whole war? 
So we actually have an interesting insight to this in a story told in the Talmud about a person called Nochum, that was his name, and his nickname was Ish Gamzu, the man of this two. And what does that mean? Because he would always say, no matter what happened, Gamzu the Toiva. This too is for the good. Anyway, not to get into the whole story, but from that story, we learn out that Avraham, he had an amazing miracle happen that when the enemies would shoot weaponry at him, it would turn into sand. When Avram and his servant would pick up the sand and throw it back, it would turn back into weapons. So that's, an, if you're not going to find that in the Torah, in the Torah, it simply, it sounds like that Avram had an army of 318, and these 318 somehow conquered the big armies of the four, the four kingdoms. Now, what happens here is that after this, he, when he wins, he actually, you know, brings everything back. And an interesting story happens here. So Noah had a son called Shame. Shame has a nickname in the Torah called Malki Tzedek. Now, you'll also remember that name if you read the book of Job's. Interesting enough, it says Malki Tzedek was the king of Shalem. So just that you should know, that name Shalem is where the second half of the name of Yerushalayim, Yerushalayim, Jerusalem comes from. Because Shem actually lived in Jerusalem. The first half of the name comes from Avraham. Because Avraham says, he uses the word Yeroeh. Appeared, God appeared. And thus, <laughs> Talmud, our sages say, that God said, I'm not getting my nose into in between these two great giants. I'll just put them both together. And thus it became Yerushalayim, Yerushalayim, Jerusalem. So he comes and he blesses Abraham and blesses the God of Abraham for protecting him. And he does the mitzvah of tithing. Now, interesting enough, Rashi tells us why, why does Malki Tzedek come after this story? So simply speaking, you would say because it was a miracle. And because it was a miracle, he came to give blessings. However, there's also a deeper insight. And that is that he came to let his offspring, Abraham, know that even though it was my offspring that you killed, I understand what took place and I don't hold it against you. Now, the king of Sodom then comes to Abram and says, listen, without you, we were all goners. So really, everything that, that belonged to me that was conquered really is spoils of war for you. And therefore, what do you want? And Avram says, I want nothing, not from a shoelace to anything. I don't want anything. Just give me back, give me back the humans that were conquered. And then he goes ahead and he says, but you can work out with the army, again, either the 318 people or his faithful servant slash student, um, what, they, what they've taken. Now, after this, Abraham 
It's very interesting on the difference between humble, righteous people and arrogant, not righteous people. When a miracle happens to an arrogant person, his attitude is, ha, you see, I'm invincible. And even if he believes in God, his attitude would be, oh, you see, I'm so loved by God that nothing can go wrong for me. The righteous people take the attitude of, wow, I just had such a huge miracle happen to me. And this must have used up any and all of my merits. For every time a miracle happens, it, so to speak, uses up the merits. And therefore, he actually prays to God. And God tells him in a vision, don't worry, I am your shield. And the next words in the verse, harbe me'oid. Your reward is very, very many, harbe. Now, Avram actually says to God, you're going to give me all this wealth, but what's going to be with it if I am childless? It's going to go not to my offspring, but to my servant, um, Eliezer. So uh, Hashem tells Abraham, no, you're going to have, he's not going to inherit you, but your offspring will inherit you. And then God takes Abraham, it says, outside and says, look at the heavens. So before he, he blessed Abraham that your offspring will be like the sands of the earth. And now he's saying it will be like the stars in the sky. Now, again, the simple definition is that it's plentiful. Again, I'm going to share with you a teaching that I learned from the Rebbe of Blessed Memory, that if you look at it, the Jewish people have always been and remain a very small minority amongst other nations. So what does it mean when God's blessing them? They'll be as, as, as many as the stars. And thus the Rebbe gives an explanation that the point is that each Jew will be able to be a star, which is a guiding light in the night. And thus you can refer to Mark Twain's line about the Jewish people being the conscious of the human race. So it's not just in the number, but in the quality. And then of course the, the dust of the earth represents the humility. Now, God tells him, I am God who took you out of the Iraq, or Kastim, and I'm giving you this land to inherit it. And all of a sudden, Avram asks for a sign. And our sages are saying, whoa, 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 where's the faith? What, you need God to give you a sign? And thus, our sages tell us in the tractic Megillah, I believe, it says over there that Abraham didn't ask for a sign to prove to me that you're going to keep your word. Rather, he asked, you're giving me the land, but what happens when my children, my offspring will eventually sin? And therefore, it's interesting that the response God says is, bring for me, and he lists some animals. And our sages say 
that ultimately what he was, what God was telling Abraham was, even if they sin, they'll have the holy temple and the altar for which they can bring sacrifices to be atoned for their sin. Now in the Chumash, that's where it stops. However, the Talmud says that it goes further. Avram said, okay, that'll be as long as they have the holy temple. And what happens once you destroy the holy temple? And that's when the Talmud says that God told Abraham that when you study the laws of a commandment that you cannot physically fulfill, it will be considered, your studying and your prayers will be considered as if you fulfilled it. Thus, in the prayers, twice a day, we read the portion of the morning sacrifices in the morning and the afternoon closing sacrifices in the afternoon. Okay, and then he's just telling us that God told him to, uh, to um, you know, after obviously he killed the, the animals in a, in a painless way, to go ahead and cut them in half and put them half on this side, half, half on that side. And our sages tell us that that is the sign of a covenant in which you take two halves and you walk in between. And thus the statement is that we're not two separate no more, we're two halves of one greater whole. And then there's an interesting thing that's taking place here where all of a sudden, Abraham sees birds of prey descending upon the pieces and he shoes them away. And our sages say that in a deeper insight, what this was actually happening was Abraham saw that in the future, King David will start conquering and he shooed him away saying, you cannot conquer yet everything. It's not the time when Mashiach comes. That's when there'll be a different type of kingdom. And Abraham is told over here, number one, that he will die in a good elders. And by the way, that's very important because we're taught that he was supposed to live just like his son Isaac, 180 years, but he lives only 175 years and he dies five years early so that he shouldn't see his grandson, Esau, um, going to murder and, and, and theft and everything. And then uh, Abram is told a prophecy that you should know that your offspring is going to be slaves in a land for 400 years. And in the fourth generation, I will bring them back. Now our sages say that actually God gave Abraham a choice. What do you choose for the cleansing of your offspring? the refinement and cleansing of the stains of sin for your offspring. Do you choose purgatory or do you choose slavery? And Abraham chose slavery. Now, I said over here, the verse says four generations. So let's just go quickly through the four generations that you have in Egypt, okay? So you have, Yocheved was born at the gates of Egypt. Then you have, I'm sorry, I, no, that wasn't right. You have, let's go backwards, Moshe, Amram, Kahos, and, uh, I'm sorry, Ye, um, Amram, Kahos, and Levi. Well, sorry. So there you have the four generations from when the suffering began. Okay, now, God makes this covenant. 
And then the next thing we're taught is a very interesting story. Remember that according to the biblical law, a husband is allowed to have more than one wife, right? Jacob had four wives. And thus we're taught over here that Sarah tells Abraham, Sarai tells Abraham that, you know, I, I am not bringing you a child. So why don't you take my maid, Hagar, and you will give her offspring. And then it'll be that in the merit that I'm giving someone else who would not have had children, the opportunity to have a child, thus I will be blessed too with a child. And Abraham does that. And Hagar conceives from the very first time that she was intimately with Avram. And because of that, Hagar started disrespecting Sarai, saying, whoa, 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 Sarai can't be as righteous as she makes herself out to be because she's been with this holy man so many years, could not conceive. And I, the first time I conceive. And thus she started disrespecting um, uh, uh, Hagar. Sarai turns to Avram and says, may God judge you for this, that you're seeing this and you're not doing anything about it. And Avram says, she's your maid. You can do as you wish. And Sarai starts again, you know, being very harsh on Hagar to make back that balance of the relationship um, that she shouldn't, you know, disrespect her mistress. And Hagar runs away. And an angel finds her. And an angel says, where are you running? And the angel says, and, and, and they, she answers the angel, I'm running away from my mistress um, because, you know, she's being tough on me. And the angel says, go back to your mistress and, and deal with the issue. And then he goes, she, the angel goes ahead and promises her a child from which she will then give forth a whole nation. Now, our sages say, what do you mean? What do you mean that the angel is saying you're going to have a child? I don't need that blessing. We just said that she was pregnant. Actually, it says that she lost her pregnancy. And thus, when she went back, she again got pregnant. She gave birth to a son, and that son is called Yishmael. Now, oh, let's go further. Abraham now becomes 99 years old. When he had, by the way, when he had Yishmael, um, he was actually 86. Now, at 99 years old, God appears to him and says, I want to make a covenant with you. And that's when God tells him that you will, I'm going to make a covenant with you. Your name will no more be Avram, but Avraham. I'm going to add a hey. And God willing, in the lecture that I'm preparing, that I send out recording, um, you'll see a whole deep explanation of that whole thing. Uh, that's where I really dissect this concept of the moonwalk. Um, uh, God willing, hopefully it'll be sent out tomorrow. And um, he tells him, you will be the father of many nations, and your name should be no more Avram, but Avraham. And then he goes, uh, God goes ahead and says that you should circumcise yourself and you should circumcise your household. And from here forth, this circumcision should take place on the eighth day. Now, Isaac was the first person 
to have been circumcised on eight days. Because if this is happening when he's 99 years old and he had um, Yishmael when he was 86 years old, so that was when Yishmael was 13 years old. And he goes ahead and he circumcises everyone. And then Hashem tells him that you should know that your wife's name won't be Sarai, but I'm going to change that last letter from a Yud to a Hey. She will be called Sarah. Now, basically, from this we learn out a huge concept. You may have heard that if someone is really in a bad, bad situation and they're afraid for his life, if he has a huge health issue, we pray for him. And one of the things we do is we add on a name. Why do we do that? Because our sages tell us that God told Avram that Avram and Sarai will not have children. Avraham and Sarah will have children. Thus, we have the concept of shinui shame, changing a name when we need to change the uh, situation of a person. And then God tells him that you're going to have a child and makes a covenant with him. The Torah portion ends with saying that Abraham did do what God said. He circumcised everyone in his household, the males, and he circumcised uh, himself. Now, by the way, I just want to share with you something very interesting. So it does not say anywhere in the Torah where the circumcision has to take place, on what part of the body. But Avram learned it out because God says in the verse, you shall, uh, you shall circumcise every male. And thus he understood that the circumcision is in the area in which you can see the difference between a male and a female. Also, I want to share with you that on a spiritual level, the Talmud says that females are born circumcised. That means they already have that divinity and holiness. And thus, needless to say, there is no such thing as a female circumcision. Okay, this is the short story of the portion. I sent out today that I was going to talk about the moonwalk. And I'm going to go in much greater detail um, in the full lecture that goes out with the notes and everything that I mentioned. However, now I just want to give a brief insight to what's going on. So God says to Avraham, Lech Lecha, go, simply go to you or go for your sake. And Ma'artzacha, you should leave your land. Umimoladetcha, and from your birthplace. Umibesa Vicha, from your father's house. El Ha'ores, to the land. Asher Ar Eka, which I will show you. Now, in the teachings of Hasidus, in the mystical teachings, there is two opinions to what this inner journey is all about. So yes, there was the physical journey, but everything is a lesson to us on a internal, meta metaphysical and metaphorical spiritual level. So what is this journey? So one opinion says, that the journey is that God's telling Abraham that your soul 
you need to journey through the layers of your soul from above to below. You can't allow for your soul to be locked into itself. The soul descended into this world so that it can come forth and illuminate revelation. Another opinion is, no, that the journey is not the soul's descent into the physical world, but rather the journey is the refinement and the elevation from the body up to spirituality. So I want to share with you what this simply practically means. So because the human being is made up of two parts, the Talmud says that in three ways the human is compared to an angel, in three ways the human is compared to an animal. And we know the animal side, I mean, just medically speaking, the body, the biology, the science of the body, it's compared to an animal. And, and that's one side. Included in that side is also the life force of the physical body is called animalistic soul, which deals with the body's needs, the body's perception of reality, the body's perception of emotions. And on that level, being that the most innate point of any creature is survival, right? Not just animals, even plants. You will watch, and I was interesting when I went to Yosemite Park, they were explaining to us how there's actually a war going on between the trees. Which one will become taller to receive the sunlight and which will dig its roots deeper? And there's literally warfare where even in some trees, one tree will actually use its roots to kind of um, um, choke another one. So the point of survival will translate into self-centered, egocentric, I am the center of the universe. And thus, I don't mean to harm or do anything bad, however, I must survive, and my survival will also include living off and taking your life. And thus, the lion has no mal intentions, malicious intentions, and you'll actually see that right after it hunts, the gazelles aren't afraid. They stay right next to the lion because they know that the lion will not attack. However, the lion, so to speak, his paradigm is you know, it's either my life or your life. And my center is all about survival. It's going to be my life. On the other hand, the soul is the exact opposite. The soul is the, the godly soul. It's all about the absolute transparency to God. And thus, the center of the soul's universe is God. And thus, instead of being egocentric, it's theocentric. However, when you talk about the soul, which is compared to a flame, you will notice that the soul, the, the flame is always jumping off the wick and being pulled back. And what this represents is that from the soul's perspective, I don't want to descend. I want to return into the bosom of God. And thus, the natural, innate directions of the journeys 
of the soul and the animalistic soul slash body is the soul is, is, is journeying upwards and the animal is journeying downwards. Thus, the purpose of life is to reverse those journeys. Teaching the soul that it's not all about you being in the bosom of God and basking in light, but rather it's for you to give the light of God, which was placed in you, into the physical darkness of the egocentric world. On the other hand, the body needs to learn that its job is to become refined, elevated, and transparent to the soul. And thus the job is to teach our body that it's nothing more like a vehicle to its driver. And thus it's not about its self-centered needs, but that it is how the soul can fulfill the life of the selfless theocentric needs. And thus, I'm sharing with you about the moonwalk because the moonwalk is all about the body moving in backwards, but yet it seems to be moving forward. And I'm playing off of that, how the entire journey of the human being is precisely that. It's the two directions from downwards and upwards. It's all about drawing down the divinity into the world, turning this jungle into the garden of God. And it's all about the body and the darkness being able to transform itself from the jungle, the lawless, I want, I want it now, into being able to elevate itself. Simply speaking, the human being has to move his, his conscious way of life from the reptilian and the limbic brain into the frontal cortex brain to live with higher intelligence and not just in the insecurity, reactive life of the reptilian survival brain. And that is all for today. I'll open up, shut the uh, recording.